There's no obstacle too great to overcome. As part of that journey, believe in who you are. You have what it takes to get to where you want to be. The answers are already within you. There is a genius within all of us. I was born with several palsy. I have always felt small. I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to see. And I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader. Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted. Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up. Use their voice and make an impact in this world. Hey, my friends. Welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host, and this show is for unconventional leaders. We want to celebrate those who are going against the grain, leading in their own unconventional way, stepping up, using their voice, and making an impact in this world world. Today we connected with the powerful Oleg Lohid. At nine years old, he relinquished his parents' rights and entered into a Russian orphanage. At 12 years old, he decided to be adopted into a new family in a new country halfway across the world to start a new life. And at 24 years old, he began a journey of helping others live the life they have always dreamed of with this incredible organization called Overcoming odds. Today we talk about what it was like for him at nine years old to make grown-up decisions like stepping away from his family and willingly entering into an orphanage to pursue a different life, moving all the way here to the States, not knowing English and trying to find himself in a very isolating situation. We talk about navigating different identities and finding out who you really are and really discovering what kind of impact you are called to make in this world. And I love when he talks about how impact does not equal numbers and we really need to value the present moment, the human being in front of us and use our story to help others. Guys, this interview is fire. I want to encourage you to connect with Oleg through the show notes. You can check out his organization there, his social media links, his podcast, all that good stuff. And listen, if you have not subscribed to this podcast, please look down at your phone unless you're driving and hit that subscribe button. And also, if you have just a second, if you've been listening a while, have gotten any value, please leave us a five-star review and some honest feedback in the review section of your Apple podcasting app. We really want to empower as many leaders as we can this year and need your help to do it. Thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into this awesome interview with my friend, Oleg Loki. You know, it really just boiled down for me, just being open-minded in environments and surrounding myself with people who have the best interest for me. And that was a journey of its own. That was a journey of its own, especially for a kid who grew up in Russia, relatively small town called Chibarkul for the first 12 years of my life. And, you know, one of the things I learned through that experience of really having to become an adult as early as five years old, because my mom was an alcoholic. My sister was 22 years older, but she didn't, she wasn't really at a point where she could take care of another kid. And so she did her best. And you know, as part of that lifestyle at nine, as you might have seen from my uh, profile, I decided to relinquish my parents' rights. And I went into an orphanage alone, scared. I didn't know what to expect. And so 
as someone who had experienced that those feelings of abandonment and neglect and rejection, it becomes very difficult to form trustworthy relationships, no matter where you are in life. I'm 14 years separated from that past life. And I still find myself questioning the essence of some of the relationships that I'm in and the friendships that I create. And so I think as part of it, there are elements of that past that will always be with me. I don't think you ever forget your past. I think you find ways to cope and work through it. And in return, you become stronger. But at the same time, it's always going to be a part of you no matter where you go. So you kind of skimmed over a huge piece of information just yeah. now. Uh-huh. You gave, explain to me, what, what was the word you used? Relinquished. Relinquish. What does that mean? What it means is to give up your parental rights to the government so that you, I was nine years old. And so the government, you essentially become the word of the state and the government has authority over you and they become your quote unquote legal guardian. And so as part of that process, what ends up happening and what I really wasn't aware of, what I was looking for when I made that decision was I needed to change the trajectory of my life. And so I was looking for an opportunity to call a second home and still be able to stay in touch with my family. As a nine-year-old kid, I didn't really understand the fact that once I make that decision, there's nothing that my mom nor my sister can do to get me back. And one of the stories that I share is that the first week when I ended up going into the orphanage, I remember when I walked up the front steps, my sister was along with me and I had a duffel bag of clothes in my other hand. So we walked in, we were immediately met by the director of the orphanage who then introduced us to the caregiver. So the way our orphanage worked was that we had three families, um, one in, in each wing, wing of the building and then one on the first floor. And I was in called family number one, which was in the left wing as you walked through the entrance. And so I remember we were met by the caregiver and I was given this tour through the orphanage and explained all the different chores and the things that we'd be doing as orphans on a daily basis. And as we walked into my room and I was accompanied by an older orphan at the time, he showed me my bed and he said, if you ever speak of anything, you'll get punished. And that's where I really got scared because I didn't really understand what that meant. And that's when I began to experience the feelings of, I want to go back home. I'm not fitting well here. I don't know these people. And the first week I ended up running away. Later on, I learned that there was a poor, poor decision because when I came back, I was made an example of in front of the whole family. And the director pulled me into her office and you know she said, you can't do this. Um, and so I, I think I ended up doing it one more time when I ran away and I ran to my mom. I found her and I remember talking to her and telling her things how I wanted to go back how the life that I was meant to live there was, it just wasn't the life that I pictured. And my mom ended up repeating the same phrase, which she used before I went into the orphanage. And that is, son, everything will be okay. You know, we'll find a way. And and that's where I think I, I really knew that there was no way that I'm going to get out. Hmm. So I signed myself up for a system that I didn't have um, a choice to get out. And so next obvious thing that I had to make was, well, how do I make the best of this? How do I not get in trouble? How do I stay away from the punishment? And so I obeyed every single rule. I obeyed all the laws. Um, I've seen it all, you know, that happens in that system. 99% of it, as you are able to see it through different online publications, it's true. The abuse that happens, the physical, the verbal. I remember a time getting picked up with two other kids from our school and we were taken to this, it was a mental institution. And one of the kids got dropped off there. And I remember their director looked at the other two of us and she said, if you guys behave in a similar way or don't perform, you'll end up there as well. And so 
And, you know, that kid ended up coming back to the orphanage a couple of weeks later, 30 pounds lighter, bruises all over his body, marks everywhere. And so you could just tell that you didn't want to end up in a place like that. So you, you had no option but to excel in school. You had no option but to always keep a smile on. You had no option but to not tell the truth about when you were asked, how is life at the orphanage? Are you treated well? I remember my sister used to come in to visit me. It was a monthly bi-weekly or monthly basis. And the visitation room was located directly across from the director's room. One of the things that was always a question mark was I never knew if the director was in her office. And so I was afraid to tell her the truth. I was afraid to tell my sister that, yes, I am getting abused hmm. and I am getting made fun of. And all these other things are happening. And so I ended up lying to her for three years. I told her that, yep, things are great. I love it here. When I reconnected with her, and this is a story we'll, we'll get into as well, when I reconnected with her six years after my adoption through a Skype call, I told her this story that, um, you know, I lied to you. It wasn't always like this. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? I said, how could I? We're sitting directly across from the highest form of, the, of authority in that particular place. So if I were to tell you anything, I had no clue what was going to happen to me after you left. And there was nothing you could do because you weren't my guardian anymore. Give, give us some context. Going back to your initial decision as a nine-year-old boy, mm -hmm. that's heavy. What, what was happening at home? And how in the world did you get exposed to this idea of like, hey, I have the option to leave this and go into an orphanage? Well, everything at home was very different from a traditional household. And that is, like I said, I didn't have a father from a very early age. There are two stories that are going around. First one is that he left at birth. And um, the second, the most recent story that I heard from my sister was that he was actually arrested for um, killing someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom, like I said before, she was an alcoholic. And so she didn't have an, she didn't have a stable place of her own. So her, her lifestyle depended entirely on the boyfriend that she was dating at the time. My sister had an apartment, which I stayed at a good amount of time. But just like any other kid, you want to be with your mom. And you are not going to accept the decision of, I'm going to abandon my mom to live with my sister. So I used to run away from my sister's place to go find my mom. And nine out of 10, I came up short in the places that I looked. But looking back at that whole experience, my mom was one of the first people that really taught me what persistence and drive really meant. Because it was the mindset of coming up short, nine out of 10, but just pushing yourself every day by telling yourself just one more place. Yeah. What if she's here? What if she's there? And that's really how I am here. That's why I'm at a, at a position where I truly refuse to accept you can't do something in life as an answer. There's always a way. As long as there's a will, there's a way. And so for me, it, that household really didn't create any sense of stability. And at nine, I had somehow heard of the orphanage system. I, I think it was somebody from my friend group or whoever else. And then I remember having this visit where it was my sister and I sitting across from this woman who was in charge of placements or the orphanages. And she had asked me the question of, you know, do you want to go into the orphanage? Because I think I was old enough to answer that. And I, I don't know the legal terms as far as if I was the one that ultimately got to decide that or if my sister had to have some input. I'm sure she had to sign some sort of paperwork, um, but it ultimately did come down to me. And so, you know, for me, the way that I made that decision was that I was just looking for a way out. I was looking for a way out out of my current situation. And as part of that, I think I was almost willing to do whatever it, whatever it takes to get out of it. And 
I think that's what makes me who I am today is the resilience. No matter what the situation I'm experiencing, I know that I'm going to find a way. And at nine, I don't think it was any different. Do you think that resilience is something you're born with and is innate or is it something that you learned? It's a really good question. I've been exploring this question for quite some time. I think we are all born with similar skill sets. I think they get defined through our decisions and experiences. So I think we all have the same toolkit, but our time determines which tools we get to use. As part of that, what I begin to believe after I've heard so many different stories throughout this time is that we all have what it takes to be who we want to be. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of connecting with other people who can help you. Because if there's anything that I do believe in this world, it is that there's no such thing as self-made man. I think the self-made term comes to the certain skills and the mastery of them. Because there's a huge level of discipline that has to come just from you, mm -hmm. just wanting it. You also have to meet other people along the way who mm -hmm. can help you open doors, mm -hmm. whether it's literal doors or mental doors or whatever it is, help you think beyond how you currently think. And so to answer your question, I think we do have the skills, but it boils down to what are the choices that we're willing to make and are making consciously or subconsciously that are helping us uncover a lot of those skills. Yeah. Yeah. Now fast forward us, you were adopted at 12, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And came, was it to, to Texas? Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what happened. So I came here to Ann Arbor, Michigan at 12. In fact, the place that I'm recording this from is my best friend's house, who was one of the first kids to kick me a soccer ball mm -hmm. on that middle school playground when I spoke maybe five words of English. And I ended up coming here. I started from scratch. I started with an English alphabet, to be exact. One of those alphabets where you pick up the letter and it says A, apple, B, banana. Yeah. So it's, it sounds all fun in theory. But when you're having to repeat it a thousand times, yeah. and you still don't understand what the letter even means or stands for, it becomes a little bit frustrating. So my first two to three years, in fact, the way that we did, I did communicate even with my parents and those that are surrounding me was through a paper dictionary. I used to carry a pocket-sized paper dictionary with me everywhere I went. Hmm. Now, I can't tell you that I used it to its full capacity because as a teenager, when you get frustrated, what ends up happening is you're not really going to take the time to look up the proper uh, translations of each word. And the other thing is that Russian, it has more characters than English. Therefore, it has a lot more words. And for me, the challenge was that I left Russia, I believe I was only in fifth grade or sixth grade. And so I didn't even know that much to begin with of that language and that history. And so I came here and there was a complete culture shock because what I'm learning here in the States is that a lot of the environment and everything around us, it's all accelerated learning. I mean, by the time you get to sixth grade, you're already thinking of SATs and it's like, you don't even know what they stand for or what they can do for your future. Then you're thinking of college and then college is supposed to be the next step to your life. So everything is just, you know, want just piled up onto each other. And what I started to learn was that because everything is accelerated, then I'm going to have to adjust to this. I'm going to have to adapt to this environment. And so I, I persisted at everything I did. I trusted the process. I believed in myself. Now that's not to say that I didn't have 
nervous breakdowns or cry sessions with my mom where we would stand in front of each other and just scream out of frustration because I don't know how to communicate what I'm trying to tell her and vice versa. And it's all, it's, it's funny now. It wasn't so funny back then when it happened. But, you know, one of the biggest role models that I was very fortunate to meet was my sixth grade teacher. His name is Rick Hall. And I'm forever grateful for him and the things that he's done for me because he was one of the people at that school who stayed with me before class, after class. And for that first year, he taught me so much that really propelled me forward. I mean, we, to, to, to give you some context, I came here halfway through sixth grade. I knew three to five words of English. Now, knowing the words and actually using them with confidence are two different things. So I came and we started with math packets. He would create math packets for me, hand them to me at the beginning of each day. I'll go out in the hallway and I'll solve them the whole day. Come back to him and he'll pull out, pull out a right, red pen. Red is, I guess, the universal language for something being incorrect. And so he'd cross off all, all the things and I would go back and resolve it. Then we moved to picture books. And one of the first books I read was Molly Pitcher. He read it to me, actually. And, you know, it, it all boils down to people like that who almost believe in you before you can believe in yourself of what you are capable of. And so he stepped up to the plate. He over-delivered. He did everything he could. And I think it's because of efforts like that and all the things that my parents have done. I mean, my parents labeled everything in the house with English words, table, wall, window, cup, paper, just so I can get adjusted and, and immerse myself into that culture and the environment. So everything, and after a while, it ended up building momentum, and I was able to pick up a lot of the things along the way. And you know, as part of it, when we're speaking about education, I think another important aspect to address is in order for education to truly work, there has to be a level of interest coming from you. And that's where I think the disconnect happens sometimes, especially not only college, I would even say high school, because it happened to me. If you don't have a genuine enough interest within a particular subject, it becomes that much harder for you to fully engage with what's being presented to you. So that's why I think platforms like the one you have built, podcasts, or any other form of expression where you get to ask questions that you genuinely want to know answers to, that's where the real education happens. Because then you are engaged within the conversation and you are having a conversation with someone that you truly want to have that conversation with. So when we talk about education reform in this country and all over the world, I don't think it's as simple as we envision it is that, okay, in person is not working, transition to online. Well, let's think about what aspect of that is not working. And that's, I think, the interest part. How do you get people more interested into the subjects? Well, one way is allow them to pick based on their own interest instead of pre-designing a course for them that does not serve their interests at this particular moment. And if, if, there, if, I've, if I've learned anything about interest and curiosity is that if you are genuinely curious about something, it's going to lead you on that proper path of where you're supposed to be. And it's going to connect you to those areas that you might not have had interest in before. I think I could talk to you all day long because you just have, there's, there's so much, there's so much to you, not only just your story, which we could talk about for three hours, but mm -hmm. also to the mission that you're on right now and the, what I call calling on mm -hmm. your life. 
And I want you to share about your organization as we're wrapping up, but there's something that just keeps coming up for me. And I, I want to know your, your thoughts is you've shifted in, in and out of different identities for lack of a better term mm-hmm. throughout your life. I mean, the beginning, you're the son of a woman who struggles with alcoholism and mm-hmm. fatherless. Then you switch over into this identity of really seeing yourself as an orphan now and a, you know, ward of the state. And then you shift into at 12 years old, an American son mm-hmm. and kind of the outcast outlier in a new country. And so there's these major shifts in identity. How did you process through that and really find who you are? I don't think I've ever been asked this question before. So I appreciate you for asking that question to begin with. I think the way that I found my true identity was really just sitting down with myself and asking myself the question of why me? Why was I the one that was put through all of these events and instances? And the answer, even though it took me a long time to find it, was always right there in front of me. And it was, if not you, then who else? Who else is meant to go through the life that you have in order to give in the way that you do? So for me, it really boiled down to sitting down, asking myself the question and evaluating and defining the experiences, not for what they were, but for the way that I allow them to be. And it was really when I flipped the script of allowing myself, giving myself permission to see an experience such as an orphanage, which is described as a horrific place and full of abuse. For me, it was a place of opportunity. Sure, all those things did happen to me. I was abused many times, but it was also that place that helped me learn what discipline looked like, what drive looked like, what it meant to commit commit to something and see it to fruition and actually see the end result. The story that I haven't shared is that when I was at the orphanage, the way that I ended up coming here to the States was actually through a folk singing program that our orphanage put together. I had no idea that that's, that, that was a hidden talent of mine. No one in my family would sing or do any sort of musical related events, but yet somehow I naturally gravitated towards that. So you are right. I have gone through many different identities and I still do. I think as you grow, you look back at older version of yourself and that's how we really, how I've been able to identify the progress that I've made as a human being is even taking a step back and looking back at yesterday. Yesterday, I was an entirely different person than I am today because I'm able to reflect back on my experience and figure out, well, these are the things that worked. These didn't. These are the relationships I made. And these are the possibilities out of all of them. So what what can I do with them now, knowing what I know? So it, it all boils down to, I think, us sitting down with ourselves and being honest with our own truth, which is, I think, the hardest part is living our truth. And there's no right or wrong when it comes to that. I can't say that the only way to live truth is to do what I'm doing, and that is publicly share your story with thousands and thousands of people, because that's not meant for everyone. And you get to define that. That's the most important part. You have a choice in how far you are wanting to go with sharing your story. And most importantly, I think, why are you sharing your story? Because your purpose of sharing your story could be as simple as you getting more comfortable within your own skin. And that's okay. I don't think everyone is meant to change the world 
on the scale of Gandhi or Steve Jobs, where millions and millions of people are impacted. Some people are meant to change the world literally by changing their own perspective or changing the perspective of their neighbor or five other people. And that's okay. And that's the most important part that I've learned after working in the nonprofit space is that I think we need to look at impact in a little different way. And that is instead of focusing so much on the numbers and allowing ourselves to decide that I'm not going to give to this particular organization because they're only impacting five people, this one's impacting 5,000, the number does not get to determine the type of impact that you've had on those people. The 5,000 people that you might have impacted you might have not you might have impacted one or even zero so it all boils down to how do you look at impact and i think the way to look at impact is one person at a time one day at a time i think that's all we have control over the fact that i'm able to share this share is my story, yeah share my story and impact you in a way that's all i can do right now yes and that's what allows me to be present here in the moment. Because when I start to think about the future and I start to think about the numbers, then I lose control of what's currently here at hand. Yep. And I'm not able to, if I'm not here, then how can you be there? Speaking of your organization, what mm-hmm. do you have going on? You have events, you have a podcast. What's the organization you built? What's your mission, my friend? So we started this organization two years ago called Overcoming Odds. And the mission that we have is to really just elevate a lot of these experiences and voices of people who have overcome unique life circumstances. As part of that, there are no specific groups that it relates to. Rather, it's whoever this the message speaks to. And so what we started to do is, as you mentioned, is we have a podcast that comes out twice a week. And on that show, purpose of it is to really just capture stories and allow other people to share their stories of overcoming adversity, different challenges in life, and always ending with seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's the most important part for us to create that platform where despite of some of the things that have happened to us, there was always a light at the end of that journey. In addition to the podcast, what I've learned was that when we first started this, we launched this whole initiative actually from written stories. It was a campaign called Stand Up and Speak Up. And it's a campaign that we're going to relaunch right now by um, allowing other people to participate and submit their stories through our website. And what was very fascinating was that when we started to look at all of the different submissions that were coming in. And at first, it started off as a platform for adoptees and foster youth to share their stories. The purpose of that was to not only educate outsiders about those two particular experiences, but also help those that have gone through it to really embrace their aspect and their identity. Since we've expanded to other demographics, refugees, immigrants, um, LGBTQ. And so What I began to notice was that as we looked at each individual story, we started to ask ourselves the question, and that is, what other resources can we offer? What do we have at our current disposal that we can add additional value to people? And that's what led us to believe to start to create these in-person events. Each event is, at its essence, an opportunity for you to get more comfortable with your own narrative. And that is to ask yourself questions, which you may not have had a chance to ask yourself before. So the three events that we have coming up, first one is in New York City. It's called Turn Your Pain Into a Powerful Message. Second one is in Washington, D.C. in October called The Courage to Be You. And the third one is Flourishing Beyond Your Circumstances. The common theme amongst all three is that each one will feature four different speakers talking about their own journeys and the ways that they've been able to overcome these 
seemingly impossible odds. And in addition, we're also going to have some sessions where people can really have their own breakthrough sessions amongst other attendees and share their stories, elements they've learned. And the goal of it, of all these events, is really just to help us as individuals to develop courage, to share our own story with ourselves to begin with, and then with others if needed, and really understand that all of the things that have happened to us happen for a reason. And so with that knowledge, what are the lessons, what are the takeaways that we can get away from those experiences? And how do we allow ourselves to become the best versions of who we are? All of that will be linked in the show notes, website, podcast. And guys, this is just the beginning of all he has to offer and just his story. We barely skimmed the surface of it. So please connect with him. But I have one question left for you. And it's a favorite question. Let's say you're to go back in time to that little boy sitting on that bed in the orphanage for the very first time, nine years old. He just walked into that family and was entering into a life that he had no idea how it was going to unravel. No Mm -hmm. idea. If you were to sit on that bed with him and tell him one thing, what would that be? Never say can't, as in you can't do something in life. Mm. Everything is possible. You set your mind to it, you achieve it. There's no obstacle too great to overcome. As part of that journey, believe in who you are. You have what it takes to get to where you want to be. The answer is already within you. There is a genius within all of us. Be open, know that your journey is going to unfold the way that it's meant to be, as defined by you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you have not subscribed yet, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit that subscribe button. And also, if you have a second, leave us a review. Lastly, we have a private Facebook group. If you are looking for a tribe of like-minded leaders who are unconventional in their approach, but dedicated to making an impact, head over to Facebook and type in unconventional leaders, and we will be sure to add you. You guys have a great week.